let her paraphrase Larry McKenzie. It was 6.35 minutes ago, and it's not coming back. A little bit longer version of his usual statement. Glad to have you here tonight. I think we emphasize at the beginning, although uh, you may very well have forgotten this and may, may not really think of the book of Hebrews this way, the book of Hebrews seems to be a written sermon. At the end of the book, in chapter 13, verse 22, he says, Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. And um, a word of exhortation would be a word that could be used. It could be used for a written document. And he does mention, I've written to you briefly. Uh, he considers this apparently to be a fairly brief letter. Uh, compared to most of the New Testament, it's not especially brief. But there's uh, various indications through the book that it was probably a sermon before it was a letter. Uh, now, it wasn't uh, tape-recorded or digitized like we're doing tonight, and so he didn't have that to uh, work from in composing and putting it into letter form. But he doesn't begin it like a letter. He ends it a little bit like a letter, just the very last few verses. But the rest of it appears to be a sermon, and we might judge it to be a fairly long sermon, 13 chapters. So by... Uh, our preferences, it would be a fairly long sermon. We'd be fussing, we'd be looking at our watch, we'd be thinking about uh, beating the others to the, to the places to eat. Well, now, I guess we're beginning to think about that a little bit again. For a while, we weren't going anywhere, right? And so that wasn't really an, uh, an issue. But uh, we would think this was pretty long. Now, uh, Joe Cannon wouldn't think it was very long, Neither would most of the people that he preached to in Papua New Guinea and other places. They wouldn't think it was long at all. They made a lot of effort. It took a long time to get there and to gather, and they didn't mind. I, I had the blessing of uh, preaching in uh, Malawi. It was about 10 years ago. And I prepared a sermon for that morning that was about 25 minutes long. And it had to be translated. I thought, okay, if I speak and then they speak, and I, this thing is going to be 50 minutes long. And I thought that was plenty long. And when I finished up, there were, there were several hundred that gathered, actually, in a rather large auditorium there in Malawi. The Churches of Christ are very strong in Malawi. I was in capital city. And... Uh, <clears throat> When I finished, I, I found out that the most common comment is, why did he quit when he was just getting started? <laughs> so they, they found the whole experience very frustrating. I found it frustrating for one reason. They found it frustrating for another. Uh, so if, if I'd have known they wanted me to go on, you know, and speak an hour and at, at, be translated for an hour, then... Maybe I could have done that. I don't know. I watched on my time zone. I'm not sure if I could have made it through two hours of standing up trying to, to work my way through that. But it's very unlikely that people in this time expected uh, 20 or 25-minute sermons, and that's all they were going to hear. Uh, so this chapter 
is one of the most beautiful and certainly probably the most memorable in terms of sticking in our minds uh, of the entire book. He is getting near the end of what he is going to say. He's in what we might call the practical application part of the sermon. The sermon has been very heavy on doctrine, you know, with those references to the Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament priesthood, the Old Testament Levitical sacrifices, and then arguing that Christ has a superior covenant, a superior priesthood, superior sacrifices. And that takes up most of the first 10 chapters. Now, there are a few times when he sort of goes over on the side and makes application. But most of those 10 chapters are uh, kind of laying a doctrinal or theological basis for what he wants to bring out in application. And he starts into that about halfway through chapter 10. And uh, he is encouraging a group of people who are apparently weak in their faith and are in danger of falling away from the faith and are under some amount of pressure, some amount of persecution, and he encourages them. Uh, here we look at the end of chapter 10, the very last verse, which leads us into chapter 11. We do not belong, and here he's gathering in them along with him. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. That's how he introduces what he's going to say. Then he gives a brief definition of faith. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then he begins what we know as this great chapter on faith. And the first part of the chapter, all the way down through verse 31, through where we were last week, introduces a series of examples. He names 11 people, but 18 times he said, by faith, this person did this. By faith, they did this. By faith, they did that. And it's in chronological order, uh, starting uh, with Abel and taking us down to the last example that uh, Gary took us through last week with Rahab. And in that set, there are 18 times that he says, by faith, so-and-so happened. And you can kind of almost hear a cadence. As he's, if, if, in, if in fact he's publicly speaking, it, it depends, I guess, on the culture and the situation, whether there was a cadence, whether, whether he said something like, by faith, Abraham brought God an offering better than Cain did. By faith, Enoch was taken. You know, does he do that 18 times through the sermon? And do people say amen at the end of, of each phrase? Uh, what, what this is, is called, I don't, I'm looking around to see if we got any of our English teachers in here who, who might know the name of this particular rhetorical ploy. It's called anaphora. And you probably had not heard the word anaphora. Anaphora basically means repetition. And it's teaching by repetition of a particular phrase. And there is a speaker that's very familiar to all of you who used this nearly every time he spoke anywhere. One of his most famous speeches was, I have a dream. 
And he said, I have a dream eight times. And every time he would say, I have a dream that. I have a dream that. I have a dream that. I was uh, watching the other night a uh, kind of history of the civil rights movement that I've been looking at. And he was asked to head the boycott after Rosa Parks was arrested in 1955 in uh, Montgomery. And apparently it was fairly short notice. I, I don't think it came as a total surprise to him, but they finally convinced him this is four days after she was arrested that he was willing to accept uh, being the leader of the boycott. And they said, by the way, you're going to speak on that tonight. And... <clears throat> According to his wife, she was quoted in the, uh, in the documentary, according to her, he had about 20 minutes to prepare the speech. I find that hard to believe, given the eloquence of the speech, but this was the first speech he ever gave. And I was listening just a little segment. The segment I listened to said this, We're not wrong. We're not wrong in what we're doing. If we are wrong... The Supreme Court of this nation is wrong. If we are wrong, the Constitution of the United States is wrong. If we are wrong, God Almighty is wrong. If we are wrong, justice is a lie and love has no meaning. You're, you've heard those ways of structuring sermons before. You occasionally hear something like that without the cadence for merit. And if you were here when Harold Shank was here, you heard it, but without much of the cadence from Harold Shank, about every third or fourth sermon. He loved this, but not this. Or not this, but this. Not this, but this. And he would put together these long runs. You know, they'd have eight, 12 items in them. And that's what it looked like this author is doing. And so, in, in my imagination, which may be totally wrong, this comes from a sermon. And in the sermon, he has a long section that he's very carefully put together with 18 times by faith. And then right after each one, he fills it in with uh, giving some illustration. And he is now, most of the way through that section, and he comes to verse 32, and here we have one of the strongest indications that this is a sermon and not something that was just written. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. And uh, so the, what more shall I say? Not what more shall I write down. I don't have space. That's not what he says. He says, I don't have time to tell about. And so these are indications that um, I, I would say probably the majority of modern interpreters of Hebrews and commentaries and stuff think this is a sermon. And that this is one of the stronger indications of it that uh, he was speaking and so he's been rattling through these eight by faith, this, by faith, this, by faith, this, and giving the examples. 
And he comes to the point where he is taking us into, he starts with Abel and Cain, and he leads us up into the land of Canaan, and he's rattled off, of course, Noah and Abraham and Sarah and their descendants and Moses and Moses' parents. He, he brings 11 examples out and he's gotten us up to the entrance into Canaan. And he basically says, shall I go on? I could go on with, like this infinitely. Uh, what should I say? I don't have time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. And uh, then that, that is sort of a, that's a very carefully constructed rhetorical line, in which as a preacher, he's, he's sort of building the impression that he could go on forever. He's doing that by rolling out a few examples. And for whatever reason, he's given up chronological order here. He's keeping a broad chronological order. What do we know these first four as? Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. As judges, yeah. We call them the judges, and they come up in, in, the, uh, in the book of Judges. And so we think, okay, well, he is, he's still kind of prolonged chronological. He's carried us into the promised land, and now he's carrying us to the period of the judges. But you probably don't know your book of Judges this well. I didn't. I have to say, I had to go and look. They said, well, it's not in chronological order. I thought, well, I better go check that. So I go thumbing through the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, it's Barak. Barak, you probably don't think very much about him. Who was he associated with that you think about? Deborah. Yeah, she gets most of the fame, right? And she gets the whole chapter that's a poem or a song about what happened with Barak. And in fact, she is God's voice to rebuke Barak. For what? What does she rebuke him for? Yeah. She said, I want you to go out here and take down the, is it the Midianites? On this little list I've given you, it, um, it goes through. Yes. No, Bar Barak is a Canaanite. And it's uh, Sisera, Right. Sisera is the, uh, the leader of the Canaanite group that he goes after. And uh, she says, God wants you to go take on Sisera and his army. And he's got 10,000 men. And he says, well, I'll go if you'll go with me. And she says, you what? God is going to give the big victory into the hands of a woman and not you. And so he gives it to, what's her name? Is it J.L.? J.L., yeah. So J.L. has this beautiful part that we love telling the kids about. You know, we're telling these stories. She takes a spike and drives it through his head while he's sleeping. That actually, it's not one of the best things to, uh, to tell little kids. They don't really enjoy the part about the spike. There's several things in Book of Judges, some of which we don't even tell the little kids, right? We don't even tell ourselves. The, the very last chapters of the book of Judges, we try to keep people from reading that section. So now you're going to go home and read it if you can't think what I'm talking about. There's some stuff in the very last few chapters that is, it is so gory and so unbelievable that uh, 
we hide it from ourselves if we can. If you've read it before, you probably, you know, have it in the deep recesses of your mind. You can't call it up because it's so bad you don't want to relive it again. Find out about what happened there. But Barak is before Gideon. Jephthah is before Samson. And Samuel, of course, is before David. So for whatever reason, he leaves chronological order He's just rattling off names. He carries us through the judges. And then Samuel's sort of the transitional person to the notable, most notable king, David. And then jumps from David to the prophets in a very broad and general way. And having run off here, one, two, three, four, five, six names and the prophets... He starts a section that has also been really carefully constructed that goes from verse 33 through 34. And look at the the interesting parallels. If you could see this in the original Greek, it would strike you even stronger because every one of these little clauses has within just a very few of exactly the same amount of syllables. And they even have a certain sound to them that's da 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 you know, when you, when you read the things out. So he's putting this together in a way that has rhetorical impact. Um, who through faith conquered kingdoms? Who through faith, and I'll repeat that first phrase just because it governs everything. Who through faith administered justice? Who through faith gained what was promised? Who through faith shut the mouths of lions? Who through faith quenched the fury of the flames? Who through faith escaped the edge of the sword? Who through faith had their weakness turned into strength? Who through faith became powerful in battle? Who through faith routed foreign armies? And so you can see that there's a certain rhetoric there's a public i mean this guy's a great public speaker i wish i could speak like this maybe i could if i took enough time it takes a lot of time to do this kind of thing jim's sitting back there looking at the chapter and he's thinking that sermon took a lot of work he i I spoke in chapel tuesday a week ago and jim came up and he said he didn't say in contrast to what you usually do. He said, you spent a lot of time on that, didn't you? And I said, yeah, I did. I spent an awful lot of time on that. Uh, and generally, you can tell when a preacher spent a lot of time on something. And this guy, he knocks it out of the park. I mean, every the, the, the 18 by faith, so-and-so and so-and-so, and now the rattling off of, of six names and the seventh, the prophets. And then each of these, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, little clauses here, which uh, mimic each other and which have a certain kind of a rhythm. Uh, if you read them out uh, in the Greek, uh, he follows up with those. Let me take you, you know, I've given you a modern example, well, two modern examples of uh, Martin Luther King and and, uh, Harold Shank, well, three, since I've thrown in Eric, 
as well. But let me go back to an ancient example. This is a century before the time of Jesus. This is in the first century B.C. There was a guy who wrote a book about how to, how to write and how to speak. It was a book on rhetoric. And he wrote it for some guy whose name we don't know anymore. It was called Rhetoric for Herenium. We don't have any idea who Herenium is, but it was some guy that some anonymous guy, whose name we also don't know, wrote this book for about rhetoric. And uh, he, he talked about uh, what he called commas. Uh, it is called a comma when single words are set apart by pauses in staccato speech, such as this. By your vigor, voice, looks, you have terrified your adversaries. Verse 32 is that. Gideon, Barak, uh, I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And you pretty much don't use conjunctions, and there aren't any conjunctions used here until the last two that are mentioned in this series. He rattles off this series in what was called in the day. Now, I'm not saying the writer of Hebrews knew the technical name for this, but the technical name was a comma, which sounds to us like what you put between each one of the items in the list. And then the next section with the little clauses, uh, he calls that a colon. And a colon is basically a collection of short clauses that uh, build together. And he talks about the rhetorical effect you can have on a speech by using these. There is a difference in onset between the comma and the colon. The comma moves upon, I mean the colon moves upon its object more slowly and less often. And the comma moves more quickly and frequently. Accordingly, if you're thinking about the comma, it seems that the arm draws back and the hand whirls about to bring the sword to the adversary's body. While in the colon, his body is, as it were, pierced by quick, repeated thrusts. And uh, so basically, this guy that I'm uh, reading from here who quotes the ancient uh, writer about what you're doing with this, says, applied to Hebrews 11, 32 to 34, we might say that the author quickly and repeatedly stabs the ears of his audience with the staccato repetition of names in chapter 11, verse 32. Then he slows the pattern slightly in 11, 34 and 33 and 34, slashing their ears with longer blows from his verbal sword. Thus, when given with an emotional delivery, the quick and repeated thrust of names in verse 32, followed by the accomplishments in verse 33, 34, rapidly pierced the minds of the listeners with the impression that a great throng of heroes of the faith crowds into the mind of the speaker as he delivers his sermon. So it's an interesting way to think about what the author is doing and that he put together a very careful sermon. He comes to the end of this list of 18 examples 
He says, oh, I'm running out of space. I can't tell you about this one and this one and this one and this one. And they did this and they did this and they did this and they did this. And he begins all of those with through faith and then rattles off that list. Now, the little handout that you have, I found in a book by a guy named Herbert W. Bateman. The book's called Charts on the Book of Hebrews. And he tries to basically kind of guess, in light of what's just been said, what we might ought to be thinking. That when we're told they conquered kingdoms, it makes sense, having just mentioned Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, Samuel and David, that all of these might be in mind when he says they conquered kingdoms. But then, of course, it's wide open to others who conquered kingdoms as well. But we know specifically that Gideon beat the, defeated the Midianites, Barak, the Canaanites, Jephthah, the Ammonites, Samuel, the Philistines. I had forgotten that, that he was involved in battle. And David, of course, the Amalekites, the Philistines, Moab, Aram, Ammon, he expanded the kingdom of Israel greatly during his time. Then secondly, they administered justice. Well, we just heard several justice, several judges rattled off. And so Gideon, who governed Issachar, Jephthah, who governed Gilead, Samuel, who was a judge as well and traveled a circuit in Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. David, of course, who ruled over Israel. Not always administering justice, but often administering justice. They shut the mouths of lions. He's just mentioned Samson. He's just mentioned David. And both of those might come to our minds when he says shut the mouth of lions, but who would come to your mind for sure? Daniel, who he hadn't mentioned. He said the prophets, but he hasn't made any specific mention of Daniel. But Daniel surely comes to mind. And maybe it comes to his mind too as well. And that's why the next thing he says is they quenched raging fire. Because if we're thinking of examples, and we've already thought of Daniel then it's easy to slide over to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who get thrown into the furnace and who live through the experience. They escape the edge of the sword. Now, we can't, I don't think we can go to any of the specific six that have been mentioned for escaping the edge of the sword, although maybe David, uh, because David could have gotten Saul's sword and he escaped the edge of Saul's sword on more than one occasion. Uh, Elijah and Jeremiah are ones who specifically were threatened to be put to death by the sword, but weren't. And so each of these examples, perhaps what has been mentioned should come to mind, and then uh, other persons. And then, then it broadens out, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Of course, becoming powerful in battle and routing foreign armies could be the judges, could be Samuel, could be David, uh, could, of course, be many others within the Old Testament. 
And then finally, the first part of verse 35, women receive back their dead, raised to life again. Who do you think of? We can't go to the New Testament for these examples. God's sick in the old, I think. So we can't use the widow of Nain. The Shunammite woman would be a great example. Uh, with with uh, it, that's Elisha, right? Instead of Elijah. But what about the, there's another woman for Elijah? Yeah, the uh, widow of Zarephath. So it, there's a lot of parallels between Elijah and Elisha. And often, you know, what Elijah has done, Elisha will repeat either in a greater way or maybe a similar uh, way. So, so you have the Elijah and the widow of Zarephath and you have Elisha and the Shunammite woman. And in fact, our first and second graders were taught a lesson about Elisha and the Shunammite woman. Uh, Jim's wife and my wife have been in there teaching a series and uh, actually... It was uh, Amy Spellings that taught that class last week. First class she's ever taught. She taught the first and second graders about the, uh, the Shunammite woman who received back her child from the dead. And so women received back their dead by resurrection. So I'm, I'm carrying this from verse 32 this week down to verse 35a, leaving the rest of 35 and on down through uh, 38 for Tim to talk about next week, which I don't want to jump into your material too much, but it's a wonderful balance because you've got to say, if you look at your own life and the lives of people of faith that you know around you, that the kind of things mentioned here I mean, most of them we wouldn't expect to accomplish, but we might say, okay, I might administer justice. I have certainly gained what was promised in many ways. My weakness has been turned into strength. So some of these phrases we could apply to ourselves and to victories that we've had in our lives But then when we look around in our own lives and we look at the lives of other Christians and some of the things that we talked about at the very beginning tonight that are happening in in the lives of people here, we have to say it doesn't always turn out that way. And what does faith have to say about that? Well, that is where he gets to beginning in 35b and following. There's people who are tortured who are jeered, who are flogged, who have chains, who are in prison, who die by stoning, who are sown in two, who are killed by the sword, who go around in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. They wander in caves and mountains. They live in caves and holes in the ground. I don't think we're going to find a single phrase in there that any of us are going to say, I did that, or somebody close to me did that. But, but we are going to say it doesn't always turn out the way we want to, whether we're faithful Christians or not. That by faith, sometimes we're given the ability to endure 
something that uh, we suffer and we don't know why we're suffering it. We don't know why it comes. We don't know why it happens. And so I think what he does, beginning in the middle of verse 35 and going through verse 38, is a very important part of the whole chapter. Because you might think that the whole chapter is how if you had enough faith, it would always turn out right. Uh, if, if you only had enough faith, it would work. I, I have a, a very good friend that had a, a child that had a genetic self-destructive disease. And um, he knew uh, for quite some time that things were going down and they were never going to turn and go back up. But there was a member of his family that thought if he had enough faith that that's not what would happen. And the member of his family finally convinced him and he, he thought it would maybe be good for this member of his family and would not be that harmful to uh, the child who didn't know a lot of things that were going on, uh, convinced uh, this person to say, you can take my child to a faith healing ceremony. And uh, you can try that direction. And they went, they took them and came back and said, well, it didn't happen. And basically they said, it still didn't happen because of you. Because if you'd have gone, it would have happened. Um, but things don't always turn out in the right direction. And uh, there are situations that we know are not going to turn out that way. And so it's important that this chapter, maybe it's important that it ends on. There are people that did this and this and this, and they're all terrible things. They're things you don't want to have anything to do with. But they all did them by faith. They all, through the faith of God, were able to endure uh, those, those things that they suffered.